Welcome back to The Joseph Carlson Show. We have so much to get into. First of all, I bought $10,000 plus of a new company. And I won't make you wait. It's right here in the financial category. It's one that I've been looking at for some time. I finally decided to add into it to the passive income portfolio. And I want to use part of this episode to explain why I chose Intuit over so many other great compounder companies. And then we're also going to be looking at a couple interviews here. We have Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft, talking about Elon Musk, talking about OpenAI, talking about the Activision Blizzard merger. Lots of various topics, and this is important to me, because Microsoft happens to be one of my very large positions. This is a $51,000 position, so Satya Nadella is the executive over a large portion of my capital. And then we also have the interview with Elon Musk. I'm sure you've seen the clips of this, him pausing for 15 seconds, Elon Musk saying, that he's gonna say what he wants and he doesn't care if it costs him money. I wanna give a quick reaction to this and share my thoughts on this very viral clip. So as always, we have a lot to get to in this episode. Let's go ahead and get started. Now let's go ahead and start off with a new position that I added to the passive income portfolio. If you've been following along with this portfolio for some time, you know that I'm pretty concentrated right now into nine different positions. We have Apple, Costco, Microsoft, Vici, Texas Roadhouse, S&P Global, and then two half positions, Union Pacific and Canadian Pacific and MasterCard. Most of these are 10% plus weighted positions. So I have a lot of capital into just a group of companies, these 10 companies. I'm not spread out between 20, 30, 40 companies. This is where my money is. These are my investments. Now, I've been looking where my capital should go next because I'm always adding to this portfolio, always adding more money. But not only am I always buying my own companies over and over again, whenever they dip, always dollar cost averaging into them, I'm always looking at other potential companies outside of my portfolio. And I keep a watch list of potential companies to add to my portfolio, the passive income watch list. In this, I have a very rigorous filtering process where I look at companies that are capital light, that are monopolistic, that are service-based, they have great economics across the board. These are the type of companies that Terry Smith looks at. They're also the type of companies that Christopher Hone and Dev Cantasaria and Warren Buffett looks at. These are the highest quality of the highest quality companies. And I'm constantly looking at these ones, filtering through different potential ones. When I look at the list right now, we have a company, Domino's, which I've owned in the past, and this one is going through a dip. Over the past six months, Domino's is down 16%. And Domino's is a great company. This is a franchise business with incredibly high margins, incredibly high returns on capital employed. So when a company like this is having a bad year and trading down, it makes me interested in it. The problem I have with Domino's, the continued issue, is how much this company levered up. Because of that, I just don't feel good adding it back to the portfolio. They have a staggering $5 billion in debt. Domino's employs more leverage than Vici, and Vici is literally a real estate company. So I just don't like the amount of leverage that Domino's has. Then we have another company that I think is incredibly good, which is Moody's. This is one that I've been looking at. Moody's has everything that you would want from a compounder. The company has an incredibly wide moat with its credit rating business. It has continually growing revenue. It has a dividend that's been going up over time for like 50 years, and it's been doing buy for literally decades. Moody's is a great company, but the problem with adding it to my portfolio is I feel like there's a significant overlap in what they do with a company I already hold. I already have a large position in S&P Global. 
S&P Global is also a credit rating business. Part of what S&P Global does is identical to Moody's. So there's extreme overlap in these two companies. So I could have added Moody's, but the problem there is, is I just don't think that it really adds a lot to my portfolio because of the overlap in S&P Global. And the same thing for MSCI. MSCI is an indice business. But that's again, very similar business model to S&P Global. S&P Global has both the Dow Jones and the S&P 500 index. So they're already in the index business. So buying either of these companies has a significant overlap in risk factors to what I already own. The next candidate, which I think is probably one of the top five best business models in the world, is Visa. This company is a very good candidate for the passive income portfolio. It doesn't matter what metric you're looking at, Visa is an incredibly good company. And best yet, Visa is trading at a decent valuation. The free cash flow yields over a 4.5%. The problem, once again, is that I already own MasterCard. And all the same things that I said about Visa could be said for MasterCard. And the same type of thing that could potentially disrupt Visa could potentially disrupt MasterCard. The risk factors are very, very similar. So again, the problem with adding Visa to the portfolio is there's considerable overlap with the risk factors in MasterCard. And I didn't feel comfortable having more payment processors. I've gone over this subject many times. Boring companies in many cases can become powerful compounders, especially if you find the right one with the right business model. And that leads me to Intuit. At the face value of it, it looks a little boring. It's been around for a long period of time. The logo's not the most exciting one. It just looks like a, an old company that offers some tax software. How much more boring can you get? You create tax software. Nothing new, flashy, or exciting. Well, I actually have the opposite opinion of this. I do not believe that Intuit is a boring company. I think this is an incredibly fierce, competitive, exciting tech company. The first thing I'll point out is Intuit is a battle-hardened company that's fought competitor after competitor after competitor, overcoming hurdle after hurdle, and winning victory after victory. One of the most notable competitors that tried to crush Intuit was Microsoft, and they failed. Microsoft failed multiple times trying to beat out Intuit, so much so that they decided to simply try to buy the company, and they weren't successful at that either. Intuit has beat competitors from Microsoft all the way over to Australia. So many different companies creating software to disrupt or uproot Intuit's business, and none of them have been remotely successful. They have maintained their wide moat over their business. And while Intuit has been defeating competitors, they've also been doing some key acquisitions. First of all, they have the software that they created. TurboTax. This is what they're most known for, but it only makes up around 30% of their actual revenue. So TurboTax is a meaningful source of revenue. I'm sure you've heard the phrases that there's two things that you'll do in this life. You will pay taxes and you'll die. Those are the two certainties. TurboTax helps you pay taxes. It's successful, frankly, because it has an easier to use interface than other alternatives. And this is by far the leading individual tax software. Next up, we have Credit Karma. This is a company that they acquired because there's significant overlap in the data between TurboTax and Credit Karma. Credit Karma helps consumers get credit cards and track their credit and increase their credit. It earns money based off of referrals and affiliate links. TurboTax learns a lot about their users whenever they're filing their taxes. It learns about their income statements, it learns about their investments and their net worth. And that can be used to aid in Credit Karma's goal. So there's a lot of overlap between these two companies. After that, there's Mint personal financial wealth tracking software. 
And as you can imagine, there's a lot of synergy and overlap between these pieces of software. TurboTax and Credit Karma and Mint can all feed each other to make the software better. After that, we have another big one. QuickBooks. This is the financial accounting software used by 80% of small businesses, businesses with less than 10 employees. QuickBooks is specifically designed to be used for people that are not accountants. They didn't want to become accountants. They wanted to start a small business and accounting is just something they have to do. So QuickBooks is designed with the thought of being the most intuitive small business software. It's had a great deal of success and Intuit views this as a huge growth path for the future of their company. MailChimp is customer management software that allows you to have email lists and contact lists and it charges you similar to a SaaS company where the bigger your business grows, the more you have to pay in monthly fees. But overall, it's another tool in this vast suite of software. Now you may notice a commonality with all of this software. It's all around home businesses, individuals' finances, managing your personal finance or your small business finance. Intuit has a little bit of a monopoly over the home business. They are monopolizing this category. They are being considered the operating system for a home business. And every one of these companies, every one of these pieces of software that Intuit owns has different avenues for growth. We can take QuickBooks, for example. This software was started by Intuit as a way to make accounting simpler for very small businesses. That was the entire goal of it. Companies that just had a couple of people. So if you opened a small restaurant, if you open a small at-home business, and you just want to get by, QuickBooks is the go-to solution. They control over 80% of this market. But the way that they've been growing this software is it's becoming quite a bit more powerful. With the goal of still keeping it easy to use and intuitive, they're also moving the software upstream, making it so that there's more plans for slightly bigger operations. It starts off with companies with just one or two employees and then companies with five or six, companies with 10 plus employees, and then companies that have 30 to 50 employees. A lot of different plans for different sizes of companies. Intuit sees this as an avenue where they can actually grow this from a simple accounting software into a fully blown CRM servicing larger corporations in a more meaningful way and vertically growing their TAM. So this is a company that at first sight, I agreed with the market. I, I thought this company just doesn't look that interesting. It's not that flashy, it's not that exciting. And my eyes are drawn to different companies. But when I started researching this one a little bit more and actually looking at the avenues of growth, looking at how fiercely competitive they are, looking at how much assets they own, how many great assets in the franchise of software they own, I became more attracted to this investment. So having gone over some of the qualities, I want to take a look at some of the fundamentals of the company. For this, I want to bring up a list of a breakdown in what I like in fundamentals and what I don't like. And I'll try to plug into it into this as accurately as possible. What I want are companies that have strong organic growth and revenue, free cash flow, and earnings per share. Now we can go ahead and look at all three of those on Qualtrim. This is a website that's included as part of the Patreon. If you're interested, there's a link in the description. We look at the revenue growth of the company. They've grown revenue steadily during every time period. It's very rare for- This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply their revenue to ever go down. One interesting thing about this company is they even grew their revenue and their earnings in 2007 to 2009. It went up during the Great Recession. People still have to file taxes and do their accounting. There's no way around it. It's something that they have to do. We have great free cash flow every single year, and it's growing rapidly, going up 13% over the past 10 years. And then the earnings per share look very similar, going up, generally speaking, over time. There was some accounting and taxings in 2015 that's not reflective of the core business. Fundamentally, this company has a very good organic growth profile. Next up, does this company demonstrate pricing power? Has it been able to raise prices above the rate of inflation without losing customers to competition? This one is a big green check mark. Intuit is continually able to exercise pricing power through pricing mixes and through straight up raising prices. They're able to do this because again, their software is mission critical. The next question is one of scalability. That's what we're looking for when we make investments. Companies that earn more money as they grow proportionate to their expenses. This one is basically... Does every incremental dollar of revenue increase the margins of the company? Is the revenue growing faster than expenses? And this is one where we have some concern. Terry Smith talked about this company and he noted that the stock-based compensation is a huge concern. That's why he sold out of the company. And we can see that concern right here. Over the past three years, the stock-based compensation of Intuit has grown at an exponential rate, faster than the cash flows. And that is something that's a little bit concerning. This was my primary concern when doing analysis on Intuit. So I read a lot about the company. I read about what management says on this subject, and I researched this topic. Right now, the stock-based compensation is going up because Intuit is bolstering their ability to create more SaaS products and to upscale products like QuickBooks to make it go up the stream and capture a bigger CRM audience. They want to organically grow their software to meet customers' needs. To do that, they want to have more talent. Now, what the management said is that they already have the talent they need to accomplish their goals. They already have acquired all the programmers and developers that require the stock-based compensation that they need. Going forward, management has said that the revenue growth and profitability growth of Intuit will grow at a faster rate than the expenses, including stock-based compensation. So the company should have higher margins going forward. Their revenue should outpace their expenses. And I believe they will have this accomplished. A lot of companies are cutting back on developers, cutting back on salaries, and the demand isn't quite as high as it was a couple of years ago. So that makes it a little bit easier for companies like Intuit to retain development power without continually dishing out more cash. The next thing I look for is a company that is a great steward of cash flow, tight control over costs. And this one's an interesting one. How do we judge whether or not a company is a great steward of cash flow? I think first of all, we can look at the acquisitions of the company. This is something that has a lot of debate. Many people disagree or agree 
on what a company buys. I think that Intuit has a very long history of doing really, really good acquisitions. Most of the companies they buy have incredibly good crossover synergy, lots of data overlap, lots of ways that they can leverage those businesses. So Intuit's not a perfectly capital light business. It's not like a Visa or a MasterCard, but it's pretty good. Now, the next thing I want in these compounder companies are ones that have predictable cash flows and earnings. You may have noticed a pattern in the type of things I like. I like predictable companies, companies that are more of a sure bet than ones that I'm guessing on what's going to happen over the next five years. In terms of Intuit, it has predictable revenue. It almost never goes down. This company really can churn out cash every single year. When we look at this on a free cash flow per share basis, it's actually growing at a faster pace. Over the past 10 years, it's grown at 13.93%. Over the past five years, it's grown at 19.67%. And then one of the last things I look for is, is the company a service-based monopoly? This isn't a requirement. I don't need every single company I invest in to be service-based or monopolistic, but it is a strong preference. I like investing in companies that are monopolistic to some degree. Having a diversified portfolio of monopolistic companies, I believe builds a very resilient shield to your portfolio, makes it overall incredibly strong. Intuit sits in a deeply entrenched position with software that's widely known and has huge network effects. It's not entirely a monopoly. It's not the only company that does this, but it is very monopolistic. The amount of market share they have in their products is approaching Google search levels. So overall, we have a company here that has a great franchise of products. It's deeply entrenched. It has massive market share and is somewhat monopolistic. It has inherent pricing power and they've leveraged that pricing power for decades now. The product is not one that's discretionary that you can decide not to use during recessions or bad economic times. And the company has ample room for growth with product upstream growth, the bigger markets, as well as different product mixes and organic pricing power. And best yet, Intuit also has diversified risk factors, meaning that I don't see any big overlap in risk factor between Intuit and MasterCard or Intuit and S&P Global. The risks are completely different, which means that overall, I'm lowering the entire risk of my portfolio by diversifying risk factors. So Intuit overall is a great company. It's a great compounder, and I think that it's going to have a great future. Now, the question is buying this company at the right price and at the right time. Let's go ahead and talk about valuation here. The first thing I want to do is highlight my strategy with buying companies. Rather than buying them at the right time, I like to reverse that question and look at it more like buying it at the wrong time. I think there's wrong time to buy companies. We can look at the right time to buy Intuit over the past decade. We could have bought it in 2013, virtually any time. And if we would have waited five years, that would have been the right time. We could have bought it in 2014, any single quarter, any single day. And that would have been the right time if we waited five years. The same thing with 2015. Five-year basis, anytime we bought it. The same thing with 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019, and 2020. You could have bought the company anywhere in that eight-year stretch and give it five years and you would have been heavily in the green beating the market. There was no way to poorly time it in this eight-year period. In fact, over the past decade, the only time that was a really bad time to buy this company was during the peak hysteria in 2021, when the market got into a massive bubble and overexcited with software companies. That was the wrong time to buy into it. Now, if I zoom in and look at the past five years, we can see that this bubble has largely deflated. It's popped. It's gone. Intuit trades at a price pre-bubble back in 2020, a price of around $400. And while the company has traded down significantly from its bubble peak, 
The fundamentals of the company have continued to go up. So the fundamentals, the operating income, free cash flow per share, and earnings power have continued to grow. Now, in terms of more specific valuation metrics, there's a couple things that I look at with the company. The earnings per share can be manipulated through a lot of different adjustments and, and different things that companies do. So I like to focus on the cash flow. And with Qualtrum, we added in a new summary information here called cash flow this little piece of information right at the top. And this little summary snippet here is incredibly, incredibly interesting. What this does is give you the free cash flow yield of the company. Everyone knows about the free cash flow yield. It's basically like the dividend yield of the company, but for the free cash flows, it's just calculating the yield you're getting. So we have the free cash flow yield of the company, but then we have the stock-based compensation adjusted free cash flow yield. This is when you adjust out stock-based comp from the free cash flows. See how it goes down? Intuit's yield with free cash flows is 3.2%. But then when you take out the stock-based compensation, it goes down to roughly 2%. And then I have something called stock-based compensation impact. This shows you as a percentage, the impact that the stock-based compensation has on your free cash flows. In the case of Intuit, over the past 12 months, it is a 38.26% impact meaning that it's reducing this number to this number by 38%. To put that more clearly, the stock-based compensation right there in purple is 38% of the total free cash flows over the past 12 months. So this gives us a lot to go off of. I know what the free cash flow yield is, I know what it is after stock-based compensation, and I know the impact of the stock-based compensation. And this is very interesting to compare against different companies. For example, we have this one of Intuit, but we can also compare it to companies like Salesforce. Salesforce, for example, has a free cash flow yield of 3%. Looks very healthy, looks like a decent value company. But then the adjusted free cash flow yield is only 1.46%, less than half of its normal free cash flow yield. The stock-based compensation impact is a staggering 52%. And we can bring up the chart here to show how that's illustrated. Stock-based compensation is 52% of their free cash flows. So this gives you a much clearer picture of the actual free cash flows of a company and the actual valuation. And I've been using this new feature to look over a lot of different software companies and do a lot of different valuation analysis. Now, going back to Intuit, when I look at the actual cash flows of this company, it is higher than some other non-tech companies and non-monopolistic companies. If you compare this to Texas Roadhouse, it's more expensive. But this company is not a restaurant. It's not a commodity. It is a highly entrenched monopolistic business. It has ample pricing power. So even though the valuation is a little bit higher than most companies, it's not extreme. So overall, I like the valuation and I really like the company. And I think it makes a great addition to my portfolio, fitting in well and diversifying risk factors. Having said that, the same disclaimer I always give. You should not buy a company just because I bought it or someone else bought it. Having borrowed conviction is a recipe for disaster. So unless you've done independent research and created your own thesis, you should not venture into individual companies. Now, moving on, we have to jump into this interview with Sachin Adela. He goes over OpenAI. He goes over responding to remarks that Elon Musk has made. He goes over the Activision Blizzard deal and a bunch of other subjects. And he is the CEO over Microsoft, which is a very significant position in the passive income portfolio. It's heavily overweighted than what it would be in the S&P 500. So let's go ahead and jump in. He starts off discussing OpenAI, and he's responding directly to remarks that Elon Musk made 
that Microsoft basically controls OpenAI. Uh, you know, in effect, Microsoft uh, has a very strong say, if not um, directly controls uh, OpenAI at this point. You know, look, first of all, I have a lot of respect for Elon and all that he does. I would just say that's factually not correct. I mean, the, as I said, OpenAI is very grounded in their mission of being controlled by a nonprofit board. We have a right. non-controlling interest in it. We have a great commercial partnership in it. His response here is so good because Sachin Adela has a way of remaining calm and, and so friendly while also saying that's factually incorrect. He just does it in a nice way. You almost don't catch that he's completely, totally rebuffing everything Elon Musk said, just saying that he's factually wrong on the subject. But he does it in such a friendly, communicative way that it doesn't come across as hostile or trying to pick a fight with Elon Musk. In partnering with a capped profit company that has a mission of fundamentally pursuing this very powerful technology that ultimately is going to be controlled by a nonprofit. In fact, the last time I checked, we are the only for-profit company that is comfortable with a non-profit company and a board controlling technology, and I would welcome others to do that as well. Right. He doesn't say it right there, but he's directly responding to Elon Musk and his various businesses. Does Tesla own any non-controlling stake in key technology like Microsoft? They really don't. So Sasha Nadella is a master at this. This is what he's good at. He tactfully says that it's not correct, that it's factually incorrect. And then he also hits back saying that Microsoft is the only one actually investing in a company with a non-controlling stake and a nonprofit that has this incredible technology. There's rumors that Elon Musk wants to start his own AI operation, but he also wants to have the controlling stake in it. Now, this next part is another great question. He's asked about basically the implications of AI. You have a lot of people like Sam Altman and Elon Musk saying that they're concerned about the power of AI and the implications it may have on us, on what it may do in the future. And this concern is thrown at Satya Nadella. A lot of AI right. is already there at scale, right? Every news feed, every sort of social media feed, uh, search as we know of it before right. chat plus search. This is something that Andy Jassy, the CEO of Amazon, has also said before on his earnings calls. Yeah, ChatGPT is new, but AI, as it's being described right now, has existed for a long period of time. Amazon uses that in virtually everything they do. When you search something into the Amazon search box, what do you think presents the results? It's artificial intelligence. It's predictive analysis of what you want to buy. So they have been using this type of AI only in different forms for a long period of time. They're all on AI, and if anything, they're black boxes. Right. Uh, they're more, I'd describe them as the autopilot era. So in an interesting way, we're moving from the autopilot era of AI to co-pilot era of AI. He accurately describes the transition that's happening. AI has existed for a long period of time, but so far it's mostly been used behind the scenes. And now we're being able to interact with them firsthand, to directly interact with things like ChatGPT. So if anything, I feel, yes, it's moving fast, but moving fast in the right direction. Uh, moving fast where humans are more in control. More, first of all, humans are in the loop versus being right. out of the loop. It's a design choice, which at least we have made. So I feel that it's more important for us to capitalize on this technology and its promise of around human agency and economic productivity. 
Having it move towards the consumer gives individuals more jurisdiction and agency over the control of AI. Now, finally, we get to the question on the Activision Blizzard deal. I've said that I think that Microsoft is in the right here. I think that Sony's much more monopolistic, much more exclusive than Microsoft in the gaming category. And I think that that is irrefutable. Sony is more monopolistic. They have bigger market share. They come out with more exclusives and they do things to keep games off of various platforms. For example, Sony does not want Microsoft to buy Activision Blizzard because Microsoft has signaled that if they bought Activision Blizzard, they would put games like Call of Duty on the Nintendo Switch. They would enable access to the game on more platforms. And Sony doesn't like that because it means more competition. Sony is the monopolistic entrenched controller of this industry. Microsoft is trying to make the games that Activision Blizzard makes more ubiquitous, more available on various platforms. So when people say that Microsoft should have this deal blocked, I don't see the data behind it. I don't see any valid argument and neither does Sachin Adela. Look, I mean, the, the fundamental logic of this deal, bringing more competition and more opportunity for publishers right. and gamers uh, still holds. So as far as I'm concerned, we keep going. We wait for what the European Union decides. Uh, we have a process. Uh, we, we obviously respect right. the sovereignty of the United Kingdom and the CMA to decide what's good you know, in that Could country. Could you ever see uh, an age where you would sell the product in the US if it was approved? sell the products in Europe and not sell it in the UK if they didn't approve it? Let's wait for it all to play out. That's a key question here. Would Microsoft be so bold to push the deal through, sell to the EU, sell to the US, but not sell to the UK? Let me remind you that Microsoft is a company that does business in over 100 countries over 100 countries, and so far, one country, the UK, has said they want to block the deal. If the US passes a deal, the EU passes a deal, if Japan does, if all different countries across the globe pass a deal, but there's one holdout, I think that Microsoft should push it forward. Now, if the EU blocks it, if the US blocks it, obviously the deal's dead. <laughs> were, you, were you surprised by this? Very much so. Very much so. Very much so. Because in some sense, this is the most pro-competitive thing I've ever seen. And then most people will say that this is, right. and in an interesting way, it is using, in some sense, a large company's ability to persist and go introduce more competition. And I think consumer right. surplus, if that is the goal, right. and more competition is the goal, and the benefit for small publishers is the goal, then it checks all the boxes. Right. So I'm like very surprised. I would love to be surprised as well, but part of the reason I didn't buy into the Activision Blizzard merger arbitrage deal is specifically because regulators are unpredictable. They're not always consistent with trying to do what's best with the laws or competition or consumers. In many cases, they have personal vendettas. They have it out for big companies, and that guides their principles more than the facts of the deal. Now, finally, we have an interview with Elon Musk being interviewed by David Favor, who I really like as an interviewer. I think he's excellent, and there's a reason that Elon Musk chose to be interviewed by him. He's very good for what he does. So I really I really enjoyed this interview. And I think that this was by far the most interesting part of the interview. David Faber asking him about why he tweets the crazy things that he tweets and the impact that those tweets have on markets, on Tesla, on investors, on everything that he's doing. On Twitter as a whole and the advertising risk, the tweets to Elon Musk have a huge impact, but he continues to tweet the way that he does. Um, even today, it, it came up in you know, anticipation of this. I mean... 
Um, you know, you do some tweets that seem to be, or at least give support to some who would call others conspiracy theories. Well, yes, but I mean, honestly, you know, <laughs> some of these conspiracy theories uh, have turned out to be true. Which ones? Well, like the, the Hunter Biden laptop. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. So the Hunter Biden laptop story was completely censored by the previous owners of Twitter. It was not able to be spread throughout any tweets, and Twitter went so far to even stop it from being spread through instant messaging. So if you're using Twitter's message feature, you couldn't even link that story to another person through direct message. That's an incredible level of censorship. So, uh, you know, that, 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 that was a pretty big deal. There was Twitter and, 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 and others engaged in active suppression of information that was relevant to the public um, that's that's a that's a terrible thing that happened that's like an interference but how do you make a choice you don't see I mean in terms of when you're going to engage I mean for example even today Elon you you, you tweeted this thing about George Soros well I'm looking for it because I want to make sure I quote it properly but I mean you know what you wrote but you basically it reminds me of Magneto this is like you know calm down people this is not like made a pick a well, case s- out of it <laughs> you also you, know, <laughs> you said he wants to erode the very fabric of civilization and Soros hates humanity like when you do something like that do you yeah, think, I think about- that's true that's my opinion okay but why share it why share it especially because I mean why share it? see his reaction to that question Elon Musk says yeah that's my opinion and David Faber says yeah but why share it why share your opinion on it I see David Faber's point here. It is his opinion, but sometimes there's opinions that you don't have to share. Not everyone has to share every single opinion that they have. And Twitter is this vehicle that sometimes gets people in trouble because it's so easy to impulsively share an opinion on literally any single thought you have. You have one thought enter your mind and the next second it can be blasted out into the world. And David Faber's saying, Look, we don't have to share every single opinion we have. We can share some of them, but why share all of them? Elon Musk acts disgusted to the idea that you have to censor your opinions or at least filter them to some extent. And that's the way that he is. He shares his opinion. This is something he's done from the very beginning. Elon Musk speaks his mind. When people who buy Teslas may not agree with you, advertisers on Twitter may not agree with you, um... Why not just say, hey, I think this. You can tell me. We can talk about it over there. You can tell your friends. But why share it widely? I mean, uh, I, this is freedom of speech. I'm allowed to say what I want. You wanted. absolutely are. But I'm trying to understand why you do, because you have to know it's got a... There, it, it puts you in, a, in the middle of a, the partisan divide in the country. It makes you a, a lightning rod for criticism. I mean, do you like that? I, you know, people today saying he's an anti-Semite. I don't think you are. No, I'm definitely I'm, I'm like, like I'm like a pro-Semite. <laughs> His criticisms of George Soros were of George Soros, nobody else. If anything. <laughs> I, I believe that probably is the case, yes. but why would you even introduce the idea then that that would be the, the case? I, I mean, it looks, we don't want to make this a George Soros interview. No, um, God, no. I, so, don't, I don't want to uh, at all, but I'm, what I'm trying, even came up though in the annual meeting. I mean, you know, do your tweets hurt the company? As this goes on, David Faber tries to get down to the heart of the issue. Elon Musk has a huge responsibility. He's the CEO of multiple companies. He has so much control and influence, and he tweets things without seemingly a lot of thought. He doesn't have the same filtering that a lot of CEOs have. You know, do your tweets hurt the company? Are there Tesla owners who say, I don't agree with his political position because, and I know it because he shares so much of it. 
or there are advertisers on Twitter that Linda Yaccarino will come and say, you got to stop, man. Or, you know, I can't get these ads because of some of the things you tweet. And this is where Elon Musk pauses for like 15 seconds to think of an answer. It creates a lot of awkwardness and a less trained interviewer, somebody that's not as good at interviewing, would try to interrupt the silence because the silence is awkward. It means that you have to fill in the gap. You don't want dead airtime. But David Faber, being someone that has done this for a while, doesn't interrupt him. He doesn't try to fill in the silence. You know, I'm reminded of... uh the scene in The Princess Bride. Great movie. Great movie. Um, where he confronts the person who killed his father. And he says, Offer me money. Offer me power. I don't care. So you just don't care? You want to share what you have to say? I'll say what I want to say, and if, 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 uh, if the consequence of that is losing money, so be it. Now, there's a lot of different ways to take this. One thing is he's already very wealthy, so losing money isn't the worst thing for Elon Musk because he already has so much money that losing it at this point isn't going to impact him at all. That's the more cynical view and the more cynical take on this, but I don't think that that's really what he's saying here. Elon Musk has spoke his mind freely for a long period of time, and even though all the media and all the people in the suits are trying to censor him, trying to contain what he says, he continues to speak his mind. Now on the same subject of CEOs and companies speaking their mind, there's something that I don't see highlighted that often. And that is the fact that Elon Musk is constantly criticized for venturing into politics, for saying crazy things online that may cost the company money, and for saying things that are politically or socially charged. Elon Musk has lots of reporters, lots of people in suits telling him to stop speaking his mind. When you look at other companies like Disney, for example, there's a report out today that Disney pulled the plug on a $1 billion investment in Florida. They did this amidst a political battle in Florida with Governor Ron DeSantis. So Disney is speaking their mind. They have a political statement. They're putting a political flag in the ground saying that they're not making investments in a certain state because they disagree with the politics of that state. This is another example outside of Elon Musk and Tesla of a company speaking its mind on politically charged issues, causing divisiveness and doing it potentially at the expense of the shareholder. This may lose shareholders money because of this political battle. But regardless, Bob Iger, who lives in California, is able to wage a political battle with a governor in Florida over a certain political issue. And he's able to do that without much pushback at all from reporters or the press. Why don't they ask the same thing of Disney? or the same thing of Starbucks, or the same thing of Nike, or the same thing of Target, or the other many companies that speak their minds on many political issues and do so unapologetically. I think the reason why is clearly because most of these companies have a liberal tilt. Most of them are liberal companies. Elon Musk is one of the few conservatives running a massive global company. So when he speaks his mind, it's problematic. He should just shush. When companies like Disney, Starbucks, Target, Nike, so on and so forth speak their minds, that's okay. Now, in terms of whether or not I think it's a good idea for CEOs and different executives to talk about politics, generally speaking, I think that it's not a good idea. Executives are there to give shareholder returns. They are to execute on the company's purpose and its goals. When I invest in a company, I invest to make money. 
I am the owner of the company. That is the position the investor is in. The executive in most cases owns only a tiny fraction of the company. And when they espouse their personal opinions through the venue of a company, it impacts the shareholders. So in most cases, I don't like companies involving themselves in politics, especially to the detriment of shareholder returns. With Elon Musk though, it's a bit different because not only is he the executive of the company, but he's the founder of it. He created it himself. So he's not someone that was just plucked and placed into the role and hired for the position. He really owns the companies that he helped found. So in his case, I think it's more appropriate for him to speak his mind. And every Tesla investor already knows that this comes along with the Tesla investment. You know by now that Elon Musk is going to say whatever he wants to say. Now that's going to be it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed and I'll see you in the next one.